0: You are listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church. We call it live from our Sunday service. Good morning. Today's scripture is taken from Psalms 26. Psalms 26 of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consult with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Joyce. Very good morning, everyone. The Lord bless you. Now, we have a number of special uh, segments today, but we still have one more because today is Mother's Day. All right, so before we get into the sermon, could I just invite all mothers, all grandmothers to stand to your feet? All right, if you're a mother, your grandmother, would you stand to your feet? We want to honor you. Yes, please stand. Do not be shy. All right. Praise God. Now, please remain standing, please remain standing, all right? I just wanna pray a prayer of blessing over you. And again, for all of us who are comfortable, you can please stretch out your hands towards them and and bless them, all right? Let's pray. Lord God, we recognize that children are your gifts to us, but at the same time, Lord, humble, godly uh, parents are also your gifts to our children. Lord, we celebrate the mothers in our midst who have sought to raise their children and their grandchildren. In your ways, we honor these women, Lord, who have comforted, nurtured, encouraged, strengthened, and interceded for your sons and daughters. Lord, you are the source of all their ability and strength. And so we ask that you would grant these women a fresh sense, Lord, of your affection and your commitment towards them, even in their journey of motherhood. Lord, we also pray especially for comfort uh, for their failings as moms that there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray for hope where there is brokenness uh, in their relationships with their children, even where their children, Lord, has walked away from you, walked away from the faith. Lord, we ask for grace that day by day, Lord, they would see your hand in their lives and in the lives of their family members, Lord. We ask for your hand of favor. We ask for your redeeming hand of grace. So, Lord, let all things work beautifully for these women as they put their, tr- their trust, their humble confidence in you. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Blessed Mother's Day. Yes, let's put our hands together. Please be seated. Yeah. Thank you, wonderful. Now this morning we come to the close of our series on hope, uh, hard times as invitations to pray. Uh, perhaps very appropriate for Mother's Day, not sure. Now when it comes to suffering, uh, there are three categories of suffering that we all face. Right, the first category is a mysterious kind of suffering. Uh, sometimes hard times come upon us suddenly, there's no rhyme, there's no reason, there's no cause for it, but it just happens, right? So mysterious kind of suffering. Uh, the second category is a self-inflicted kind of suffering. Right, this is what we talked about last, last Sunday. Uh, many times we go through hard times as a result of our own sinful actions, as a result of our own foolish decisions. And many times we go through a crisis of our own making. But what we learned last Sunday is that there is still hope for us as sinners, even when we go through self-inflicted suffering. Then there's a third category of suffering, and that is unjust suffering. Right? This is where we go through hard times uh, because of the unjust actions and decisions of other people. We suffer, but it has had no fault of our own, right? We suffer as a consequence of the sins of other people. Now this morning, we're addressing this third category of suffering, and that is uh, unjust suffering. And we'll be looking at the second of the two back-to-back psalms. Last week was Psalm 25, so today we're looking at Psalm 26. Now both psalms, again, were written by David. Both were psalms uh, written as personal prayers to God in times of trouble. Psalm 25, however, is a prayer for God's gracious deliverance, but Psalm 26 is a bold prayer for justice. right, you should see it on the screen. Uh, And through this Psalm, what we're gonna see are three things. Firstly, David's bold prayer. Secondly, our struggle with bold prayer, Uh, what keeps us from praying the way that David prayed. And finally, we receive God's invitation towards such bold prayer. Now, just like last week, uh, I won't be going through Psalm 26 verse by verse, nor am I gonna flash up on screen all the verses I mentioned. Uh, So I'm just gonna be referencing the verses verbally as I go through the sermon. So if you have your Bibles with you, right, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to just have them open at Psalm 26, and that will really help you follow along, all right? So let's get started firstly with David's bold prayer. Now, just like we saw last week in Psalm 25, David is in trouble. He's facing some hardships. We don't know what exactly David is going through, but from the first verse, it's very clear that David needs help. And this is what David prays. He prays, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. Now, what does vindicate mean? To be vindicated means to be publicly cleared of blame to be cleared of any accusations, any charges made against you. Now, just these two short lines tell us that David is facing unjust suffering. He's facing injustice, and he's asking to be delivered. And part of the suffering is that his name, his reputation, his integrity, is all being dragged through the mud by cunning, wicked men. He's being judged unfairly. There's perhaps an agenda against him, And David has no other means to get justice. He has no one else to turn to. And so he looks to God and he pleads with God to vindicate him. But what makes David's prayer so bold is that he is asking to be vindicated. You should see this on the screen again. On account of his integrity. David is saying that he is blameless. He is innocent in the matter. Now, this is a really bold thing to say about yourself before a holy God, right? You can imagine going to David and saying, really, you know, are you sure you didn't contribute to this situation in some way, right? You know what people say? It takes two hands to clap, right? Are you sure somewhere along the way you didn't do something to make these men your enemies? Are you sure you didn't provoke them in some way to take these kind of actions against you? But that's precisely what David is saying. He's insisting that he's totally blameless, he's totally innocent in the matter. Now I think it's helpful for us to understand what he means and in what ways David considers himself blameless. So how is David blameless? How does he make a case for his innocence? The first reason David gives for his innocence is that David trusts in God. In the last verse of verse one, David says, he has trusted in the Lord without wavering. Now usually, when you wanna prove your innocence, you will wanna talk about what you did or what you didn't do. That's why you you wanna flash out and make clear that you are innocent. But David doesn't mention any of that. Instead, David sets a context for his innocence. Now what does that mean? What what does it mean, a context for his innocence? You've probably heard examples of this before. Now, one example could be when a man is accused of adultery, he might say, why would I cheat on my wife? She's the love of my life. Right now, if you listen closely, you realize that the man didn't actually say that he, whether or not he had the affair, right? He didn't say anything like that, but what he does is that he sets a context of deep love for his wife, and in that context of deep love, it would seem almost ridiculous for him to have had an affair. Now, in the same way, David is setting a context for his innocence, and he's saying, I love God wholeheartedly. I'm utterly devoted to Him. Never once during this whole saga have I ever doubted Him or turned away from Him. Now, what is the context of David's innocence? It is David's faith in God. Since David trusts God so much, why would he have done anything to sin against God. David insists he's innocent. And so in verse two, David invites God to do his own investigation. He says, prove me O Lord. Try me, test my heart and my mind. David is saying to God, test me, prove me. Do your own independent audit of every aspect of my life and you're not gonna find anything. David is confident of his innocence, firstly, because he trusts God. The second reason David gives for his innocence is that David obeys God. In the last line of verse 3, David says that he walks in God's faithfulness. Now, the original word translated as faithfulness also means truth, right? And so David has been walking in God's truth, or in other words, David has been walking in obedience to God. Now, earlier, David laid the context for his innocence, now David is explicit. He didn't do anything wrong. He's walking in obedience before God. David is innocent and he's confident of it because he obeys God. The third reason David gives for his innocence is that David avoids evil. In verse three and four, David talks about how he distances himself from those who may be a bad influence on him. When I was a teenager, uh, there was a group of us from church who regularly would go out and play computer games. Uh, Yeah, we'd go to these things called land shops. I'm not sure if they're still around anymore, maybe extinct already. Uh, We would spend hours and hours playing those computer games, right? Sunday after church, Friday before cell. Uh, If it was the school holidays, we were there every other day. Uh, Years and years, we were doing this, right? It was a clear addiction for us. Our grades were suffering, we didn't care very much else beyond our gaming. Uh, We were spending way too much money on this. And there came a point, actually many times, there came this point where one or two of us felt like, we gotta stop this, right? It's it's just too expensive, It's, it's ruining our lives, we need to stop this. But the thing is, as long as we were together, we never stopped, right? We kept gaming and we were a bad influence on each other and it took our national service to finally break us apart and for us to break that habit. Now David knew something that me and my friends didn't quite understand at that time. David knew that if he wanted to do what was right, he had to stop mixing with the wrong people. I think David was so aware of his sinful capacity. He knew that he wasn't strong enough to stay true to God while putting himself in a position to be influenced and tempted by bad company. And so David keeps away from such people. He avoids evil. He keeps temptation as far from him as possible. And that becomes the third reason why David is confident of his innocence. He avoids evil. Now the fourth and final reason David gives for his blamelessness is that he loves God. From verses six to eight, David talks about the privilege of being able to worship God in the temple. Worship him without any guilt, without any condemnation. In verse eight, David declares, oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. David loves the temple, right? The temple is where God and man came together. But David's love is more than just the temple itself. David loves God. David loves being close to God. David loves worshiping God freely without being weighed down by hypocrisy or condemnation. And because David loves God so much, why would he do anything to jeopardize his relationship with God, to jeopardize his intimacy with God, that nearness with God? And so that becomes David's fourth reason, final reason for why he insists he's blameless and innocent. Now if you look at all four reasons, uh, can we just have it back up on the screen again? Uh, have, we look at all four reasons, you would realize that reasons number two and three, they have to do with what David did or did not do. But reasons one and four have to do with David's heart. They have to do with what David loves, with what he treasures and what he delights in. Now what this tells us is that David builds his innocence, his blamelessness, his integrity, not based on what other people think about him. It's not built on what he did or did not do primarily. It is based firstly on what God thinks of him. And David sincerely believes that his heart, his ways are right and they are true before God. And so as he experiences unjust suffering, David believes that he is just before God. He's right before God. And out of that, Justness with God, David makes his bold prayer for vindication and justice. Now we've looked at David's prayer, we've heard where it's coming from. Now I wanna turn our attention from David to us and our struggle with bold prayer. The truth is, I think many of us might find David's prayer uncomfortable. It sounds a bit proud and it sounds quite self-righteous, right? We, we can't imagine ourselves praying such a prayer where we come before God and say, I'm right, they're wrong. Vindicate me. Prove me innocent. Prove them guilty. Redeem my reputation, but ruin the hours. Now, praying this way, it feels a bit too fierce. Right? It's a bit too judgmental. It feels quite self-righteous to pray such things. So she has a question for us, why Why do we view such prayers as self-righteous? And I have two reasons to offer. Of course, there are many other reasons, but here are two of them, right? The first is a cultural reason, and the second has to do with our Christian faith. So the first reason is that culturally, there is an emphasis on empathy over morality. Now, what do I mean? Now, it's become really clear that the world has moved away from capital M morality to a more small m morality, right? Universal, absolute right and wrongs have been replaced with a more relativistic, individualistic set of right and wrongs. In other words, what I believe to be wrong is more important than what is actually wrong. So when I was in university more than 10 years ago, right, this is quite a while back, 10 years ago, I spoke to someone who didn't believe that pedophilia or sexual relations with children is always wrong. He believed that in some cases, even pedophilia, something as heinous and as disgusting as that, should be treated as right and moral. So in our culture, there's no absolute right and wrong. But obviously, there are still wrongs, there are still injustices happening all around us. Now if we had those absolute categories of right and wrong, we could condemn easily such behaviors and such individuals. But now that those absolute categories are taken away, how do we deal with injustices and in wrongdoing? And this is where psychology has come to replace morality. Nowadays, instead of condemning wrong behavior, our culture tries to empathize with where this behavior is coming from. Right? Does the fault lie with the upbringing, the way that the parents raised this person? Uh, is the society at large to be blamed? Right? The assumption is that no one naturally would do such bad things. There must be something in the past or in society that would cause someone to behave badly. And we see this empathetic approach in the movies we watch. It's there in the books we read. The discussion about this happening everywhere on social media is just everywhere. And so just by virtue of being immersed, being part of such a culture, even as Christians, we find ourselves becoming very empathetic towards wrongdoers and wrongdoing. We don't think primarily in terms of morality, in terms of right and wrong, but in terms of What would make a person do such a thing? Now, I wanna clarify that psychology, empathy, these are not bad things, all right? Nor is it wrong to try and understand the role of upbringing and the society uh, in promoting bad behavior in individuals? But the issue is when we replace morality with empathy. Now, you would realize that David has no problems praying boldly for vindication and justice because in his culture, What's wrong is wrong and it must be punished. But as Christians today, we may even struggle with the concept, the idea of punishment. Because in our empathetic culture, it's becoming increasingly difficult to really think that a wrong is wrong just because it's wrong. And that when someone does wrong, justice takes first priority over rehabilitation, over restoration. And so it's no surprise that even as Christians, we struggle to pray like David did, to pray bold prayers for vindication and for justice. And that's the first reason, it's a cultural reason. Now the second reason is when we misunderstand grace to mean foregoing justice. Now this is a problem that arises when we misunderstand the gospel. Now a couple of months back, my family and I, we got cheated by a taxi driver. He was a nice guy, very chatty. I was thinking, oh, maybe I can share the gospel with this guy. During the trip, something felt a bit off, right? And after the trip, I went home, I compared the receipt uh, with a similar trip that we'd done before, and I compared the two receipts together. And I found that on this trip, I had paid 50% more than the previous trips. And I traveled about 60% further, and I'd spent about 30% more time on the road. So I got cheated. So the question is, what should I do, right? Now the cultural empathetic approach would have been to consider, why did this driver cheat me, right? Maybe what if, you know, he desperately needs the money, maybe for his family. What if he's being subjected to unreasonable demands by the taxi company, right? Rentals too high and so on. What should I do? They take it to another level and you say, as a Christian, as a Christian, what should I do? And so I think about the cross. I think about Jesus dying for my sins. And firstly, I remember that I'm just a sinner like that taxi uncle. So who am I to judge him? Who am I to cast the first stone? And then I remember that I'm saved by grace. Jesus paid for my sins. So shouldn't I pay for this taxi uncle's, uh, this taxi uncle's sin, right? Shouldn't I turn the other cheek, fight evil with good and exercise grace at the expense of justice. Now this is a wrong way of applying the gospel. Right, we have placed grace and justice in opposition with one another. So when there's grace, sadly we think that justice is absent. In other words, grace is foregoing justice, and that is completely wrong. Now this way of thinking comes from a misunderstanding of grace, and more importantly, a misunderstanding of who God is. But because we wrongly understand and we wrongly apply the gospel in this way, it's also hard for us to resonate with David's bold prayer for vindication. And it's so hard for us to pray such bold prayers ourselves when we are in the midst of unjust suffering. So even as Christians, we do struggle with praying bold prayers for justice and vindication oftentimes it's because of the culture, the empathetic uh, emphasis that is made there, but it's also sometimes because of our misunderstanding of grace. So what do we do? How can we regain a conviction to pray bold prayers for justice and vindication? Now this is where we receive God's invitation to bold prayer. David closes, his prayer in Psalm 26 with these words from Psalm, from verse 12, sorry. He says, my foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly I will bless the Lord. David can pray such a bold prayer because he has found a sure footing, a level ground, a firm foundation, right? And this is the sure footing that God invites us to stand upon so that we can boldly pray for justice as well. Now what is this level footing, this firm foundation that anchors David's bold prayer? Now on the surface, it really looks like David's firm foundation is his integrity, it's his blamelessness. It's how he trusts God, how he obeys God, how he avoids evil, and how he loves God. But in reality, his integrity His blamelessness is not the foundation itself. The foundation is God's steadfast love for him that has been revealed, as we see in verse three. The foundation is God's gracious and redeeming nature, uh, as he says in verse 11. David's bold prayer for vindication is built upon the character and the faithfulness of God. Now that's David's firm foundation. That's his sure footing. Now, how about us? What is our sure footing for praying boldly for vindication? What is our firm foundation for pursuing justice? You know, when the pursuit of justice is not properly grounded, it's going to pull us in one of three directions. Now, the first direction will be towards passivity. We're going to be pursuing justice less and less. Why? Because that's just just the way the culture is right, and because that's how we think Christianity works. Now, the truth is some of us are drawn towards that passivity. Maybe by nature, we're just less confrontational, right? We we avoid conflicts and we just like leaving things be and hoping for the best, right? So the passive approach, it appeals to some of us. In fact, you might even become self-righteous about being passive. You might use passages about uh, turning the other cheek, passages about being meek, Passages about being unmoved and unshaken. And you look at those people around you who are frantically trying to get justice, right? They seem so angry all the time. Sometimes they look like they've gone mad, right? They can't eat, they can't sleep. And you shake your head at them and you say, thank God I'm not like them. Thank God I'm on the right path of grace. I'm clearly enjoying the peaceful benefits. But Christians and non-Christians alike, they look at you, And they wonder, what kind of God do you worship? How is it that your God isn't bothered by injustice and sin and wrongdoing? And what kind of gospel is this that tells Christians, relax, take it easy. Don't get so worked up about injustice. God is all about grace. And because of your passivity towards justice, they want nothing to do with your faith. They don't want to listen to your gospel. They don't wanna believe in your Jesus. So passivity is the first direction that we might head towards when our pursuit of justice is not grounded properly. But there's a second direction that we might head in, and that's towards despair. You see, for some of us, it's really hard to just brush aside injustice, right? At the very core of your being, there's a desire to see justice being done. But then you hear the culture telling you that true justice can only be done when we perfectly empathize with those who have wronged us. And then your misunderstanding of God's grace makes you feel like the right thing to do is just let the perpetrator go. Let the taxi uncle go, right? Just bear with the injustice. Just remind yourself that you are just a sinner, like the person who has wronged you. And also at the same time, you wouldn't wanna scare him or her away from believing in Jesus, right? From becoming a Christian. So, you know, don't scare them away by pursuing justice, hold back. So you continue to be kind. You continue to, to hope that your kindness will lead this person to believe in Jesus. You try all these things. You try your best to, be, to ignore that deep desire you have for justice. You try to be meek. You try to be nice. You try to be kind. You try to be accommodating, but it's killing you. It feels like something at the very core of your being is being violated. Then you begin to hate the cross. How unjust the cross of Jesus Christ seems to you now. How could Jesus just die and let sinners go scot-free? But then again, no choice, right? What else can you do but receive the forgiveness and grace of the cross? And so you feel like a, like a hostage, right? Either you give up justice or you give up grace and then go to hell. How do you make such a decision? And so you sink deeper and deeper into despair. Then there's a third decision, or rather a third direction, which is pretty similar with the direction of despair. Now this third direction is towards hardness. Justice matters so much to you, and the unjust sufferings that you are going through, it defines you, it's become who you are. And now with that misunderstanding of God's grace, right, grace means foregoing justice, you give in to that hatred for the cross. You give in to that hatred for the gospel, for grace. You even come to hate God. So rather than falling into despair, you choose to harden your heart. Your heart is walled up. No one can get near to your pain, right? When they do, it is to their unbearable shame. You make it clear that they were part of the problem. They were part of the injustice, right? They were the ones who failed to show up in your hour of need. They are the reason why you burn with a self-righteous hatred for everything and for everyone. And now the desire for justice has mutated into an all-consuming obsession for revenge. And it has left you hardened and alone and tightly wound up all the time. When the foundation of our pursuit of justice is uneven ground, we're going to head in one of these three directions. Passivity, despair, Hardness what is your pursuit of justice built upon? What is your sure footing for your bold prayers for vindication? There is no firmer foundation than faith. Faith is not f- wishful thinking. Now as we heard last week, faith is a humble confidence in the character of God. It's a humble confidence in who God is. Now who is God? God is a God of grace. He forgives, he pardons, he removes guilt and condemnation. And God is a God of justice. By no means does he allow the guilty to go unpunished. And yes, the cross is a terrific demonstration of God's grace. Jesus died in our place for our sins. We are the sinners, yet he became stricken. We are the perpetrators, yet he is punished. And this is grace. We don't deserve it. We had no means to force Jesus to show us such grace, but He did so anyway. Why? For the glory of God. Because of His great love for us. And this is amazing grace. But the cross is not only a demonstration of grace, it is a demonstration of justice. Our sins need to be paid for. Eye for an eye, wound for wound. Betrayal for betrayal, humiliation for humiliation, violence for violence, life for life. And our sins against God need to be paid for as well. But who's gonna pay for these sins? How are they gonna pay for these sins? One year in hell? Two years in hell? Even an eternity in hell wouldn't be enough for our sins as mere mortals against the holy, infinite God. But those sins need to be paid for. Who's gonna pay for them? you can't i can't even the best people on earth have their own sins to pay for there's no way they can pay for ours as well who's gonna pay none other than god himself the person of jesus taking on humanity he said i'll do it right he volunteered himself as tribute in our place the infinite everlasting god in the place of finite mortal men And he made payment for us, wound for wound, betrayal for betrayal, humiliation for humiliation, violence for violence, blood for blood, flesh for flesh, and finally life for life. Now mind you, Jesus was not making payment for our sins to us or to any other human institution or authority. Jesus was making payment to God, the judge of all the earth. And God's just wrath against us, or satisfied. And for those of us who put our trust in Jesus, the Bible says we are justified. We are justified. That's a legal word. That's a word that you use in a court of law. It comes from the root word, just. And to be justified means that justice has been administered and you are made right. You are made just before God. The cross is 100% justice. And at the cross, grace was never about foregoing or forfeiting justice. Grace was about fully, completely satisfying justice. Now when you see Jesus giving his life, his dignity, his emotional, his mental well-being to satisfy the requirements of justice, how could you remain passive in pursuing justice? And when you understand that Jesus did that for you, how could you not want to do it for others? And if you see God himself taking on flesh in the person of Jesus to satisfy his own desire for justice, why should you fall into despair? Hasn't God proven his commitment to justice that across the history of all the earth, there is no one who is more dedicated and more hungry for justice to be done? And if you see justice being served at the cross, then why wouldn't you come before God in bold prayer, knocking and knocking and knocking at his door until you see justice being done? Why wouldn't you ask for vindication? But when you understand that all of that was achieved, is totally undeserved. What was done at the cross is totally an act of pure grace then why would you harden your heart? Why would you turn away from God? If He had loved you at your sinful worst, why would He forsake you or deny you in the time of your righteous need? Who else but God is worthy to be the strength of your heart? And undergirding all of these bold prayers, all these efforts for justice and vindication, our anchor, our sure footing is this. The cross is God's steadfast love before our eyes. Justice can now be truth with grace, morality with empathy, boldness with hope. The cross of Jesus Christ, the embrace of grace and justice, this is our sure footing for praying these bold prayers for vindication. As long as the cross is before our eyes, then. That's when we can love our enemies while also exposing their sins, their their lies, their offenses. That's when we we can forgive those who have wronged us while at the same time seeking justice against them. And that's when we can pray boldly for vindication and yet in hope never avenge ourselves. Because at the cross we know that God is surely gracious and generous And he will surely repay. Let's turn to him in prayer. Our Lord, in our times of hardship, our times of suffering, whatever kind it is, we run to you, Lord. You are our refuge, you are our hiding place, you are our safety. And you are our vindication. We worship you, Father, for Jesus. We praise you for not only saving us, but justifying us in Christ. We are made right, made just before you. And by his blood, by his death, justice has been served. Lord, we ask your forgiveness, Lord, because our minds are so small our perspectives are so narrow. Our consciences are so weak. Forgive us for thinking that grace means foregoing justice. Lord, what an offense to your nature, your character. You are a God who loves justice. You're a God who is seated on righteousness and in glorious justice. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us that At times, we have used this misunderstanding of grace to allow injustice, to allow perpetrators to continue in their wicked ways, Lord. Forgive us, O God. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and place the cross of Jesus Christ before our eyes as an everlasting testimony of God's steadfast love and faithfulness so that even in our unjust sufferings that we would honour you By seeking truth with grace seeking morality with empathy and being bold with hope lord we commit ourselves to you we commit our situations the the sufferings the 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 unjust situations we're going through also to you deliver us we pray lord and we pray all this in jesus name and all of god's people say
0: Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg.